Warning, this podcast has stories of real-life events and true crime that happens every day. These stories may contain adult language and graphic or disturbing details not suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In our society, most people are content to go through their daily lives safely and peacefully. But our society is not always safe or peaceful. For that reason... Some men and women answer a higher calling to defend and protect their fellow man. You probably know someone who is one of these people, or maybe you are one of these people. The ones who see and do the things most people would never want to. These things are sometimes heroic and beautiful, but often they are horrific and terrifying. It's these things they don't share about with other people. It's these things they carry with them, so you don't have to. But when they get together, they talk to each other about them. And they call these stories War Stories. Welcome to another episode of War Stories. I'm Tom. And I'm Chuck. And uh, we really appreciate our guest uh, joining us from the future. We love to talk about how we get guests from the future. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, Lucy uh, Lucy's with us. Lucy is a police officer in Australia. Uh, specifically, what part of Australia are you a police officer in, Lucy? Because I know there's a system that's a little bit different uh, in Australia. Mm. Yeah. So um, I'm part of the West Australian Police. So um, Australia is broken up into seven states and I'm on the West Coast. Got it. And uh, is it, am I to understand that each police force is based on which uh, state? you're in is that kind of like each one is run by the governor of that state so it's kind of like a police force for the province or for the state is that how it works yeah that, that's probably the best way to describe okay. it we have um what we call state premiers which is like governor um mm-hmm. yeah so each state has their own police force and then there is a commonwealth um police force which is called the australian federal police right um, so they deal with the overarching legislation yeah federal crimes and it's like our it's like a yeah yeah, i know what you're talking about federal police i get it um so why did you uh tell us a little bit about yourself how how you how'd you end up getting into law enforcement how long have you been in law enforcement what what your experience is your background is sure so i joined wa police uh almost 10 years ago um i (laughs) sounds silly but it's mostly because it, it sort of suited my personality, um, that kind of structure, um, following the rules, I suppose, um, and I believed in in uh, my community and I've always wanted to give back and take care of, of my community. That's always been right. quite, you know, a driving force for me. Um, as, a, as a younger kid growing up, I always looked to the military and always wanted to sort of head that way. But at the time, um, women weren't really in like active roles. Um, so that sort of put me off a little bit. And then um, as things got further along and I got a little bit older, I realised that I actually really love my country and I don't really want to leave. I want to live and work. Um, right. Yeah. So police was it for me. It's... It, it's um interesting how no matter where we interview people from uh in law enforcement in firefighting and it's always saying it's not you do it because oh you know i thought i was gonna make a ton of money it's always you know it was in me to want to give back and make the place i live better you know it's funny you know uh lucy you and i joined around at this similar time time frame uh been on for about 10 years and uh and for this about the same reasons, I had a family in law enforcement and stuff like that. I wanted to give back to my community and to really take care of them. Um, so that's, that's interesting, you know, um, pretty cool. And so um, yeah. how does it work? How does that process work in Australia when, when you make that decision? Is it college? Is it, uh, is it like a trade school? How, how do you get into law enforcement? So here in Australia, we are, we're so lucky. Um, and I'll <laughs> dive into that a little bit. So I didn't even finish high school. I um I had two jobs 
and I was paying my own school fees and I got to year 11, so I was 16 and went, this is ridiculous, why am I doing this when I could just work full time? Um, so I made that poor decision to leave school and <laughs> just work. And <laughs> I made the same one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, and then at um, about 22, I realized that I was just going around and around and around on a wheel that was never going to stop um, and I wasn't going to get anywhere. So <clears throat> I looked at what the requirements were to enter the WA police, Western Australian police, WA police, um, and I met all of them except for the fitness element. And as far as the education element was concerned, you just needed a year 10. Um, you needed to have successfully completed year 10, which I had. Um, and so the fitness was the only thing that I needed to work on and got that squared away and um, put my application in, um, <clears throat> which was, it was quite a long application. There was a bit in there where you had to really tell a story about yourself and why you were doing it as a statement of claims. So I did that. and. They, it's funny when the very first day that I, that we started, or my squad and I, um, I think it was the principal of the academy said, it's been a long and arduous process to get you here, and that was deliberate. Um, so it was 18 months from the moment that I sent my application in to the moment that I was sitting there at the academy for my first day. Um, so really, as long as that you have the right about, attitude. That sounds a decent amount of time. Yeah. How long it took me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and that, that is fairly standard. Um, some people, it took them about eight months, um, and some people even longer. Some people had had numerous attempts to get in. A bit worrying. Anyway. You know what's more um, worrying? Is when, when people they finally have numerous do get in. Well, no, when they have numerous attempts in the academy and they keep failing out. You're like, oh, yeah. uh, I I I, won't, uh, I I have a friend who sh- who shall remain nameless, but uh, yes, um, she had to fight the psych to get onto the department that she ultimately got onto, and she fought the psych one, got onto the department, and then subsequently never made it through probation because funny that turns out the first shrink was right. Was right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like a fifty-fifty half. Yeah, time, those shrinks are full of shit. So that's the thing. Like, I'm not saying that police shrinks are the best shrinks in the world, but you know, the hiring process ones seem to do a little bit better job (laughs) than the uh, healing process ones. (laughs) And and it's pretty standard. Uh, There's certain things you're going to have to hit, and there's certain no go zones. And you know, if you if you don't meet that standard, which isn't for us, it's not particularly high. Right. If you're not meeting that, then mm. uh, maybe yeah. you should. True or false? I loved my father. Um, true. Don't read into it. I loved. loved your daddy, <laughs> right? Like, uh, yeah. true or false? I want to be a fire truck. You know, true or false? I am fascinated by fire. True. Don't overthink it. You know, <laughs> it's Ooh. don't. Yes, on yeah. all Autobots assemble. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, yeah I, I I I totally understand what you're saying. It's it's not hard to 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 screw it up if you overthink it. But if you're overthinking it, maybe you're the kind of person that overthinks things, and maybe you shouldn't. It's not hard to yeah. figure out. Yeah, I mean, it, it it brings up questions of integrity as well. If you have right. to sit there and hum and har about your answer, um, there's a difference between being careful in what you say but just also being open and honest and transparent, um, right. which doesn't, doesn't always serve you the best. Yeah. When you're stuck but with, I don't want to lie, but I also don't want to tell you what you're asking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but, so, so that you was get the through process. the Yeah, so you get through the whole process. And then is it a, is it a live-in academy? Or do, you, do you actually live on the premise? Okay, so you go home. Yeah, so you so um, Western Australia has uh, the state capital is Perth, Perth City, um, and the academy is in Perth. Um, and I'm from the country, so I had to um, rearrange my entire life um, and move to Perth. Um, and it was six months in the academy, and then um, 
about oh, probably about two weeks before you finish. You get given a piece of paper and it's got like one to three, pick a um, metropolitan area that you would prefer to go. And you may or may not get you right. put in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of, kind of, kind of makes you feel good that you've got maybe a little bit of control over where you're going to go. Right. Theoretically. <laughs> um, yeah, but, and there's always this term is um, operational department necessity. Needs. Yeah, department yeah. needs operational yeah. necessity. So Six of one happens in the other. Yeah, so if that if they use that term, it means oh, we Uh, i love it i love it when you say that's not in my job description and they go see this part of your job description that says and other duties as assigned (laughs) is in your job description i got i got a vault told to go somewhere for operational necessities and uh, i was like i I didn't put in for that no Mm -hmm. and they're like yeah then i was like huh silver lining i don't have to be stuck at the area I did my probation at for, for any longer. So I'm no longer the new guy. I go somewhere else and I'm, yeah, I'm still the new guy, but I'm not the boot who was just there on training. And yeah. then I ended up really liking the place and uh, sticking around and, and uh, it was cool. And yeah. So, so it can work sometimes. out. It can work out. Yeah. yeah. Did you go to anywhere yeah. on your list? Uh, yeah. So when you first graduate, usually what happens, I don't know if you guys have the same thing, but we have got what's called the booze bus. And um, it's <laughs> a booze bus, yeah. a paddy wagon. A booze bus. No, 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 no. I literally mean like an enormous bus that would, it's the size that could transport people from one side of the country to the other. Like it's an right. enormous bus. And it's completely kitted out to be like a mobile police station. And inside are little um, alcoves that are done up so they contain drug. Um, so like oral because we do uh, like oral samples for drug driving um, and they, so they have a machine for that. Actually, they don't anymore. That's all changed. But they did when I went through. Um, and they also have a breath machine. Um, and so what happens with the booth bus is they will have designated areas. So you, it's not actually really to catch Lots of drink drivers. It's more about just getting the volume of of traffic through because it's a numbers game. Um, so they will pull up on a highway, let's say. They'll pull up the bus and it's got like every conceivable flashing light and sign and everything. It's huge. Um, so they'll set up all of the little probationary constables that have just come out of the academy or get out like little ants and run around and put cones out and get the whole area set up, shut down the highway and put sign, huge big like LED signs further back down the road, which people don't necessarily take much notice of and still nearly kill you as they come through. Is this a DUI um, checkpoint? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, and so you're, you're on a DUI big checkpoint. mobile DUI checkpoint run by nothing but academy graduates. Oh, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> well, <at least laughs> I would they like to go to court out, on that one. <laughs> yeah, right. They certainly outnumber, <laughs> certainly outnumber the the supervisors. So it look, it is a good gig, and it, it it's a very soft way to expose brand new people who are generally very young as well to dealing with the public. And you're you're in a role that people don't like. Like people do not want to sit there and be stopped on their way to work or on their way home, and they haven't done anything wrong, and they're having to wait to do a breath test that's going to be negative. Um, so it, it, it gives you that that sort of soft, ease it into dealing with conflict, um, realising that not everyone likes you. Um, and, and also that you, yeah. will, you will stumble across some interesting stuff, like because bad guys, they roll around in cars um, and they carry interesting things in cars. And so depending on who your supervisors are, who is looking after you, um, you can have a really good time and you can really get into cars, search them, find out who's in the cars. You'll get arrest warrants out of cars. You'll get people wanted for things. Yeah. I was really lucky. Car stop searches. I, yeah. So we call them QVSs, quality vehicle stops, um, where you're not just here, blow into this, yep, bye. You're actually taking notice of who's in the car, what they're doing. You're asking them questions and you're really paying attention to what they say to you 
and you're starting to develop uh, investigative skills, I suppose. Right. You know, and right. that's that, that's the that's the really easy way to to get us little dumb bunnies straight out of the academy into that sort of. I'm a police officer. This is my job. I have to be and and being situationally aware as well. Yeah, on the road, you got to have your head on the road. Yeah, yeah. And the amount of times that you would get someone that had been drinking, so you're going to get them out of the car. And I never did this. And I watched in horror many, many times, and it's never ended, where the guys would get whoever it was out of the car and then they would walk in front of them to the bus. I'm like, you just, you don't know who that is. <laughs> and you just turned <laughs> your back on them. They, they're following you and they know they're about to get on that bus and they're about to blow into a machine and their license is about to be taken away. So they're probably not that happy. Um, and they're behind you. I walk around my office and people will hold the door open for me. And I'm like, no, you go. No, please. Okay. I, and yeah, they're like, no, no, please. and I'm like, nope, Mm-mm. nobody walks behind me. <laughs> Hypervigilance. That's it's situational just, awareness. It's yeah. just ingrained yeah. in us. I, it's, I'd be interested to know. I mean, we have something similar in the United States with certain departments, for example. Uh, I know, there are many sheriff's departments, including one of the biggest sheriff's departments in the world, L.A. County Sheriff, where one of the prerequisites to be a deputy sheriff uh, on patrol is to be a deputy sheriff in the jail system that the sheriff also oh. runs. So the sheriff's department controls the jails and controls the courts and controls patrol in unincorporated non-city areas here. Well, they start the deputies. The deputies can be 19 years old and go work in the jail. So they they go work in the jail at 19, 20 years old. They they spend a couple of years there. They they meet people in a safe environment that want to hurt them. And they yeah. learn how to handle those people properly. And then yeah. when they get their training wheels off after, you know, two or three years, they'll go out to an actual station and go to a wow. patrol school. A long time. And, yeah. So you know, I I do have to say the uh the the agency that you work for in Australia does it pretty it's pretty smart that they do that get new uh boots or rookies or whatever you want to call them <clears throat> to handle one of the most uh straight away from uh stops there are and that's uh, uh suspected of drunk driving i know experienced officers are like mm, i'm gonna just not go over here you know because they're not familiar with it because <clears throat> it's not something that they do on a daily basis because uh we're not you know, a lot of uh, agencies have um, traffic divisions and traffic officers who primarily deal with DUIs and a regular patrol is not necessarily going to come in contact with a lot of those DUIs unless they're out there looking for it because the calls, the call service and call volume is so much higher to deal with other things that when it finally happens to them, they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. And they, so they don't like to handle them. Whereas you guys are coming straight out, bam, right into it. And I think that's a really good uh, skill to learn, not to mention you learn how to deal with a drunk person, not to mention you learn how to deal with a really tricky report. Yeah, see, Chuck, uh, you you have a totally different perspective than I do because I don't know what that privilege is like. What I know is, is that when my ass got out of training, I was expected to handle everything from domestic violence reports to homicide investigations to DUI calls, and there was no detectives really to call out. There was no traffic unit to oh, to. Yeah. to pawn it off on so it's funny because i i know like a lot of big city you know big uh big agency coppers they get to see more shootings and stabbings and they handle these things so often and then when it comes to the you know they end up stopping a car and they're drunk and they're like oh crap i don't i forgot like i remember this from the academy but i haven't stopped a drunk driver i've been so busy shagging calls You know what's yeah. funny is that, yeah, in the bigger agencies, it is really easy to kind of stray away from those uh, DUI calls because you're constantly dealing with other things. So it's easy yeah. to get stuck on these other calls and never handle a DUI for years, you know, or maybe one every year or maybe one every yeah. two years, you know. And when I was going through the academy, they had a block period of instruction where they were like, okay, we're going to learn how to deal and talk to people who are victims of rape and sexual assault and they're like but you're really not going to come in contact with an, on patrol because you know it's, it doesn't happen all the time those calls don't really come out people don't really like to report them so it's very rare that you're going to deal with them mm. guess what day one yeah on patrol oh, no. <laughs> i was like seven hours overtime uh with a rape victim 
And, and I was like, and ours was, you will interview fuck? the victim. Oh, dude, we interviewed the victim at the station. It the detectives didn't take the initial, like the detective, the detectives did follow that, up later. That's Is mad that for you guys, Lucy. Is that so? so <clears throat> Not every single person straight out of the academy goes to the booze bus, but it is a very, very high percentage. And some of you will just go straight out to a police station and you will just go out. We call them general duties officers. So um, they're like patrol inquiry. A call comes in for help. They're the ones that go. Um, so And they have always partnered with, retract that, they are partnered with another hmm. officer. I was about to say they always partner with an experienced officer. That's not true. <laughs> they may just be partnered with an officer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no longer on probation. Right. <laughs> uh, but um, experience is relative when you're short staffed. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Um, so interesting you say about the rape victim because so how it works for us, and Western Australia is an enormous state, um, and so we have one metropolitan area which is Perth, um, and that's broken up into separate divisions. Um, I worked in the the shadiest one, and I always laugh when you guys say about the South End. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it's always the South End, even in Australia, yeah. where the South End is yeah. the North End. Is I don't yeah. know. Yeah, anyway. we um we affectionately called it. It was SEM. Um, so that was Southeast Metropolitan Area. So South, found, yeah, found and like the East, and it, it was awful. Um, oh, when I say it's awful, the the jobs the jobs are pretty full on, and it's mainly domestic violence. Um, and mental health. Oh my god! Um, are there a lot of apartments? N- no, I mean there are there are really big apartment complexes. Not big by your standards, but for us, it, they are, and they're always a nightmare because you walk in and there's always like a, a courtyard area, <clears throat> which is great for the shithead that you're about to go deal with who's standing on like the sixth floor <laughs> like the project, and they can throw stuff at you. <laughs> Um, yeah, I so, love that this job is universal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, <clears throat> I do remember going to one call, um, and it was a an any Aussie like West Aussie copper that's listening to this. Oh yeah, I know that place. It's called um, Nanine Place in in Perth, um, and it, it's the the apartment block was like a U shape, and the to get in there, it was actually quite a drive to get in there, and the driveway was so narrow. And every single time I went in there, I wasn't the driver. Because if I was a driver, I wouldn't have actually drove into the apartment complex. I would rather walk, thank you. Um, so you would drive in <laughs> yep. and you would have to you'd have to do like this stupid 50 million point turn to be able to get your car turned around so you could hightail it out if you wanted. That would take you like 40 seconds. So you've been observed the whole time. And they know you're there. They know you're coming. Yeah. And um, they've padded and remember, the walls and whistled and beat the bamboo yeah. telegraph. And I remember, I remember this one one day we went in there, and it, you do sort of get used to it, and but always looking. And I just saw something out of the corner of my eye, and I look over, and I don't think it was directed at us because it was a fair way away from us. Um, I think it was just I don't even think they realised the police were there, um, but someone threw a microwave. <laughs> from like the fourth story <laughs> it just <laughs> <laughs> hit the ground it wasn't close to me it was probably about three or four meters away but if that had have hit me like i mean that's close enough <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> i mean i don't feet, think they were aiming feet? for me <laughs> but, but uh, i would consider oh, that rude <laughs> yeah <laughs> bit rude um I, I never found out who threw it either I was, oh, oh well you, goodbye you have a good day i'm over here doing you know, anyway um yeah so are you gonna heat up that hot pocket now huh yeah yeah so um yeah there's interesting places like that and i I would imagine it's kind of the same no matter where you go in the world Um, it's always the same but but sorry just on that where you're saying that you would have to interview the rape victims we don't do that um so if if i went to a job and also um like a a legit rape victim is quite rare it like for us yes. over here um however rape's not rare like that i'm not saying that at all i'm just saying no. that it's, it's quite a rare legitimate that you have, rape victim yeah reporting like, it to the police oh, is rare. yeah 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 um and yeah. it's also not to say but, that the report calls are rare 
No, the, no. The calls aren't rare, but the no. legitimate cases no. that no. are reported are. So you would obviously get the get some sort of an account from the victim, um, try and figure out what you're dealing with, and then once you realise what you're dealing with, you'd be straight on the phone to detectives, and it would be. And I've found this. It's really not a good idea to start interviewing a victim of sexual assault unless you know what you're doing because you only get one shot at it. And it is very, very uncomfortable when you are sitting in district court with an entire jury looking at you and a very well-educated, well-worded defence lawyer like just smashing you about the interview that you conducted with a victim of sexual assault and you start to realise that there were like questions you should have asked, maybe questions you shouldn't have asked, um, and they start asking you about the person's demeanour and things like because they're trying to they're trying to discredit them. But if you're brand new, um, yeah, you you're going to miss a lot, and you only get one shot with those mm-hmm. victims to get a really good account. And I didn't realise like how much hinges on their credibility and the quality of the victim statement. I learned the hard way. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. That would be, and for us, so I, I can say that for Chuck's experience going through the sexual assault portion or the rape portion of the, the academy where they're like, yeah, you probably won't have, I mean, we're teaching it to you, so you know how to do it. However, yeah. it's, you're not going to experience it a lot. And for me in the academy, it was pretty much somebody coming in and saying the things you're saying, but also importing to you, hey, you are going to be dealing with this a lot around mm-hmm. here. There's college, there's this, there's that, there's two prisons, there's, you know, like you're going to be dealing with these kinds of reports. So yeah, yeah. Um, pay attention. And, and they spent a lot of time in the academy on this is how you do it. And this is how you do it. Well, they brought in investigators. So we did get the training, but then what it became was it became incumbent on the training officers in the field is to really mentor you through that process so that you've seen multiple interviews done successfully before you even get to do your first one. And so we we don't have that. We we don't have. I was was really lucky that I ended up working with a, uh, he was a really, he's a nice guy, but as a a training officer, it's teaching you, he's a dick. And he, he was an expert in the field because he worked a specialized task force for sexual assaults and things like that. And so I was benefit, I I benefited from it and I was really lucky to have this guy teach me how to do investigations when it came to people who were victims of sexual assault. Um, And man, I got to tell you, I handled more sexual assault, sexual assaults with this guy than I, I think with any other officer that I, I worked with on training. And I, I got to tell you, like he, he, my first one, I wrote like a three or four page report. He looks at it, boof, deletes it. And I was like, yeah. And then he writes it, has me read it, gives me as an exemplar, but made me work all the way through it for like two hours. And yeah. then right in front of my face, boom, just deletes it. And I was like, oh shit. And then he, he writes it again. in like 35 minutes. Cause he was present with me during the, all the interviews, asked some questions that I didn't ask. And so I was able to learn from him as I'm asking these uncomfortable questions. And because <clears throat> it was a uh, female who I was interviewing, so it was already uh, uncomfortable. And um, she was cool with talking with us. And so I was, I was able and benefited from that. But there's so many people who don't have that. And, I, and they get into court and they don't ask the right questions and they, they, they uh, botch it. But we are, yep. we are lucky enough to have where we were able to call detectives, get advice, and then the detective immediately does a follow-up before it ever even goes to court. So they're able yeah. to ask questions that we right. didn't ask in the report. And then they are able to um, uh, testify to it as well. But yeah. right. going to court so it kind of cuts out rare. the patrol officer. If it goes to court, then nine times out of 10, Not really. The, if it goes to court, the patrol officer will, his, his initial response with the exception of maybe collection of evidence like clothing will be negligible yeah. and most of it will hinge yeah. on what the detectives do. But I, I, I could talk about the difference between Australia, uh, policing yeah. in Australia and policing in the United States for hours. Cause it's fascinating to me. However, yeah. we, we know you brought some great stories. So the floor is yours. Mm-hmm. You have, yeah, you, please. What is your story? Sure. So 
Um, we'll start towards the beginning of my career. So I think I was about maybe six months out. Um, so I'd finished up at the booze last and I had gone over to a police station in Southeast Metro. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. And I had spent a couple of months on just like regular shift, normal patrols who do days and nights and um, afternoon shifts. Um, and I was working with a team of oh, probably about 10 other officers. Um, and then so there was this particular officer at our station that um, a position had to be made to accommodate him. Um, and this specific- <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> who was he, he was related trans- to um yeah. so he was a transitional police officer so in australia um we will recruit police from other countries typically um from the uk because they their style and is, yeah it's all very, very similar. Their government's very, very similar, all of that. Yeah. A lot of their legislation is very, very similar. Um, however, we do recruit from other places as well, um, and one of them was Poland, um, which is where this officer was from. Anyway, so his Poland, yeah. Poland, like, Poland, like, like, <laughs> like Poland. as in Amsterdam. Like, like, like wooden shoes. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Dutch? Yeah. Yeah, Dutch. He was Dutch. R- real quick, I've been watching Ted Lasso, and they have a Dutchman on their on their uh, football team, and he, they're very, very honest and blunt and straightforward, and don't really lie and will shoot straight off the hip, and kind of rude. Is that the same? Yeah. Is that true? Oh, there okay, we cool. go. Can't wait. Awesome. <laughs> anyway, I mean that's not the story, but I'm just giving you an idea of who I was working with, and um, oh, so shit. this position that he'd been given was the warrants. And VRO, which um, restraining orders. So restraining orders uh, have to be served by a police officer on the on the bound person. Sure. Um, so normally, what and warrants, as in like in your district, you have X amount of outstanding arrest warrants, people that have got arrest warrants. Um, and normally, what happens, and that is what happens, and this is the only place I've ever been where it's been done differently, is at the start of your shift, you'll be given. Um, a file with um, restraining orders for service and your car if you're not doing anything that's your job like you and your partner that day are going to be serving those um, restraining orders and another car will be given the warrant list and your job if you're not tasking and doing other things will be to go and try and lock up these people that have got arrest warrants and that works well but anyway not for the station I was at so he had his own little team and there would be like the sacrificial probationary constable <laughs> that would be rotated in and out mm-hmm. um, with him. And I got rotated in. Um, so I was stuck with him for a few months. Um, oh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Anyway, this is, this is a guy who just stood there like shocked, didn't even get on the radio and scream for help while I was being thrown around a kitchen on the back of some roided up like nutcase who uh, he by the just way wasn't prepared <laughs> no and he just yeah anyway so the only time that we would get to go to real jobs was if they were like uh what we call priority two so a lights and sirens job um so urgent jobs and there's no other car available so, so your version would... of lights and sirens jobs is our version of a code three call i think because code three yeah. for us means lights and siren and a call yeah. is a job right so a type, so we you have, guys have type two jobs. Yeah, so we have different priorities. So priority one is okay. like armed holder, a child's been abducted. That's like the highest level of police officers screening for help because they're being, right. yeah, like, yeah. Um, priority two is it's still lights and sirens. You still need to get there as quickly as safe. Um, yeah, so that's the only jobs that I got to go to while I was working with him were those. Um, because there was no other vehicle available and we we were just rolling around with this stupid file that really didn't matter that much. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, they do, I suppose, matter. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, so we get this, um, there's this job that's being broadcast over the radio and they need a car to go. It was outside of our, so inside of our district, we have like little sub-districts and it was outside of where we would normally operate. 
not too far, but it was outside. Um, so we put our hand up. I, I put our hand up and said, yeah, we'll go. And I swear he probably just looked at me and was like, because <laughs> he, he, he didn't like doing any work. Um, anyway, we get there. Um, and funnily enough, the address was about well, two streets away from the police station of that sub-district, but they were busy with other jobs, so they couldn't go. We get there. We're second car on scene. Um, we were, like, seconds behind a traffic vehicle. Um, so we do have traffic police. Um, and so it's really rare that they rock up to jobs, and they had. And I just remember it was a – I can't remember the fella, but I remember the female copper, and she walked out of the house, and she was white, and she didn't speak, um, and she just walked away. I was like, well, okay. Um, thank God the ambulance was already there and the, the paramedics were inside. And it was two, two women, two women, um, two female paramedics. So I walk in, and as I'm coming up to the front door, I can see because it's, like it's like a solid wood door, but either side of it, these big panels of glass. I don't know why you would have your house like that, but anyway. Um, so the glass. I mean, yeah. you'd be surprised at some of the silly architecture you could see in the big. Why city. bother locking the yeah. door? Um, yep. Yeah. So they. they Hell, don't even have snap. a door. Yeah, just come in. Come in. That's fine. Um, so <laughs> yeah, they had smashed the the glass panel in, um, and it was big enough to be an adult through. So um, these people had gone through the glass panel, um, and there was an old. Irish guy who lived at the house. When I say old, I mean he was probably about sixty years old, and he was a bear, like he was huge, um, like pretty overweight, but he was still a really, really big, powerful bear. And I walked in to the lounge room. I'd never seen so much blood, and I had been very lucky up until that point, and not really going to anything that was that crazy. No real gore. I'd been to a couple of stabbings, but they weren't, they were just like stabbed in the leg. It might have gone in a centimetre. Like it wasn't anything mad. Walk in and there was just blood just everywhere. And um, this guy, he's lying on the ground in the middle of his lounge room. And there's one paramedic and she's like racing around, do whatever she's doing. Um, the other paramedic is kneeling at his head and she actually had his head pretty much pressed between her knees. Um, so she was holding his face with her hands and then right. she was squeezing her hands with her knees either, either side of his head. And I'm like, oh, this just doesn't look very good. No. <laughs> and, um, and she goes, oh, hi, <laughs> like that. <laughs> oh, hi. <laughs> she goes, what's uh, your name? Oh, my name's Lucy. <laughs> this is awkward. Goes, oh, excellent. Well, Lucy, you're going to come over here and do my job. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't even know what your job is. <laughs> and, and, and at that point, at that point, I'm like, I wonder if that's what she said to the other female copper, <laughs> <laughs> the one that just walked away. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, no worries. So I walked around um, to where she was, and she said, "It's like right." So you see what I'm doing? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Goes, so I need you to do this but we're going to have to be really careful about like you getting your hand on there before I take the pressure off. And, and it, it, like, I didn't, I couldn't really see, cause it was just so much blood. I couldn't really see where it was coming from or what the injury was. The only thing I had clocked at that point was his thumbs were almost completely severed. Like they were just hanging by a skin just on that oh, they side. They were like broken um, backwards. They it so they were cut through it pretty much the the joint, oh. and like you could see all the cartilage and all of that. Ah. So that was the and that was the only like very obvious injury I could see. But there's just so much blood. And then so I yeah, but still down. that you you're like oh oh yeah. Um, I found out later why his thumbs were like that. Um, but so I knelt down next to the paramedic and we kind of did this weird little awkward shimmy and I got into position and um, and she went to move her hand from his face and I fumbled and I wasn't quick enough oh. and his, 
his entire cheek came away <gasps> from <coughs> from his face. Yeah, I, so I could like, yeah, there was mm-hmm. you could see like the whole inside of his mouth. Yeah, mm. and um, so he'd been cut from starting at about just on his temple, mm-hmm. and the knife had tracked just below his eye, down to the side of his nose, straight down through his top lip, through the middle, through the middle of his bottom lip, and then down along his jaw, uh, like following his jawline back towards his ear. And so all of that was open. That wasn't the it's worst thing. It's going to be a hell of a scar. Yeah. Oh, he'd wear it well. <laughs> um, the, the worst injury was he had had his throat slit. And I didn't realize that until I was like over the top of him. Um, so his throat was split. It wasn't all the way across. It was it was from pretty much like just below one of his ears to just over halfway. Um, and there were so this is what so he survived. Um, and this is what saved his life. He was such a big guy and like so overweight. He had like this huge big pelican gullet. Of like, oh, like fat? yeah, like neck fat like, anymore. Yeah, neck fat. It was <laughs> so it was this huge, big, and it was probably a bit smaller by that point as well. But it was huge, like this huge, big roll of fat under his chin, and that had saved him because they didn't actually crack his windpipe, and they missed his jugular and his um and his carotid. They cut all of the tendons and the muscle and everything in his neck. Um. And there was just all of like this bright yellow fat. (laughs) Yeah, I can. I know exactly what. Like I just see it in my head. I never, I've never seen that before. We got to see some interesting photos in the academy, but I'd never seen that in real life before. Mm, Anyway, yeah. Um. So I'm just over the top of him, just jamming his face back on, and he's almost like drowning in his own blood because he's bleeding into his mouth. He is trying, like this is, he was legit. He was trying to tell us who had done this. He's, he, he's trying his best. He's talking and his sure. lips are doing other things, but he's still right. talking to us. Yep. Yeah. And, and he gave us a really good description um, and he gave us a really good account of what happened. So how it all went down is he was actually on the phone to a friend of his. While he was on the phone, these people are trying to break into his house. He stayed on the phone to his friend, which is how the police got called because they heard the entire thing happen. They they were there on the phone listening to their friend get almost murdered. And so that's how the police were notified and that's how we got oh. there. So, yeah, so quickly. Um, and so he was, come to find out later, he was um, ex-IRA. Oh. And yeah. Oh. And he had come to Australia and he Hi. had in his house, yeah, in his house, he had a, it, it was some phenomenal number, like 40 states in his house. And he, from, because this obviously ended up going over to homicide um, or like major crime detectives. So it comes to find out from them that he um, used to hold on to money for different underworld figures that that was his job he was the money keeper um so these people obviously knew that and they had they'd come to rob him he was in a in a a thigh to toe cast at the time um because about like five weeks earlier he'd been attacked he was at a wedding and he'd been attacked by probably the same people after the same stuff and they they'd broken his leg yeah second Um, amendment brother second amendment (laughs) So, uh, you know what? I'm sure there was probably a few a few items in that house that um that would go bang. Nah, but, there he, you go. but he couldn't get to them. Um, so these people um, they broke in. It was three. It was two guys, one lady, and they broke in. They had wrestled him to the ground. They handcuffed him, and then this guy had sat on top of him. And I suppose it was kind of like, tell us where the money is, open the safes, or I'll stab you. And he would have just said like fuck you, I am not doing that, and they well, we'll start carving away pretty much. So the carving um, was like torture to get him to talk. Yeah. yeah. And the breaking but, of his thumbs. That, 
Yeah, I'm seeing the breaking of the thumbs. That's what it looked like. No, so this is the best bit. The thumbs, and this, and he was telling us this. He goes, I, because they, they like knocked him over, handcuffed him, held him down, and the like the main guy have gone to the kitchen and got his own knives to use on him. And he sat on top of him, and when he started carving away, this big guy managed to get his arms from above his head down and he grabbed, because the guy had a knife in each hand, he grabbed the blades. Oh, he tried to like do like the movies. (laughs) So he actually like he held on and he lacerated all the inside of his hand, but yeah, nearly cut both thumbs off. And one of the knives, he snapped the blade out of it and stabbed this guy like a a whole heap of times. And he stabbed him really, really low down in the abdomen, like near his groin. And that's where all the blood was. It oh, wasn't was, just the guy blood. was bleeding out from like the femoral or something. Yeah. Yeah, he was dying. And um, so because we didn't search a house, we just by this stage, like it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and there's more and right. more. They packed that dude up and rushed him off by the before you yeah, got there. So sure. our job was to go with the ambulance because we thought he was going to die. So we needed to be with him. Dying declaration. Get as much, exactly. Get as much information as we could because we thought he was going to die. Um, so when they searched the house, they found this huge blood trail that went out the back into the backyard and then over the fence. So all the bad guys had fled um, and gone their separate ways. And about it was probably about three or four hours later, there was um, an ambulance call for um, a guy who was bleeding to death in his car. He parked it at a fuel station, and it, I think he was trying to get to our biggest hospital in Perth, which is called Royal Perth Hospital, um, because he was very, very close to to the hospital, um, and he just, that was it. He couldn't go any further. Um, and then he finally called an ambulance, and they got there, and we knew that we that at some, either we were going to find a body. Right. Um, or they were going to end up in hospital. Um, so, yeah, so he got caught. And, um, but I remember going in, and so all of that kind of happened behind the scenes. I didn't really know about that until later. Um, but went into hospital with this old, the Irish guy. And um, it was kind of like in the movies where there's like that push and shove between the cops and the doctors. And um, <laughs> so he, he is trying to tell us. He would not shut up. And I wasn't even asking him any questions. He was just, he was telling us. Um, everything he could because I think he's like I'm trying to write I'm trying to write yeah yeah I think he he realized he was probably not going to survive um and this doctor is like like, just go away if you don't go away like if he keeps talking he's going to die oh okay yeah all right Right, like oh wait so if we if we stop talking to him we can (laughs) talk to him later but if we keep talking to him we'll never be able to talk to him again yeah yeah (laughs) so and so what I say, like when I'm talking about the person I was working with, so like that's my memory of it, and I don't remember him at all during that whole scenario. Like he, there was no teamwork, there was nothing. It was me writing everything. I did the incident report. Um, I did the handover with the detectives, and I was, I was very, very new. Um, but yeah, that was, and I'm since that I've never ever been to a more gory than that and yeah that's like a pretty it, good that, one i mean head wounds bleed like, so i can imagine the neck and the yeah. face were just bleeding oh, profusely even yeah. without hitting an artery or a vein but that's yeah. just head wounds bleed right and then yeah. you add to that that somebody got nicked in the abdomen near the groin where the where the gut oh, ooh, yeah. that'd be yeah. bad that yeah. gravity yeah. alone gravity alone yeah. will just pull blood right out of your freaking <laughs> So in, the the guy that got stabbed in the lower abdomen, he um, because I'm in the in the lounge room, there were all these plastic bags, and they were all covered in blood, like plastic shopping bags. So what made sense later because what he'd actually done was he had got a plastic shopping bag, and like put a hole in it at the bottom and put his foot through it, and then like shimmied it up his leg, and somehow secured. Trying to make it a blood the- diaper. Yeah, like he secured it over the wound, which I don't know, maybe that helped him. Um, I don't, you do strange things when you're like dying. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> but yeah, so this, he was this plastic like, bag looks like bag. a great bandage. <laughs> yeah. But oh, uh, yeah, but I mean, it's funny because like that one, that one never ever kept me up at night. Um, never bothered me at all. Not at all. I think I think because the guy wasn't what I would consider like a true victim. Um, and right. to me, we, like a true victim, we, we is someone who used to call it no humans involved. I mean, you guys yeah. can't say that, but I'm retired. I can say it. It was like, okay, a piece of shit attacked another piece of shit and kind of street justice happened. Yeah. I mean, yeah. kind of karma on both sides. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if he wasn't the person that he was, he wouldn't have been targeted and he wouldn't have ended up in that position. Um, but so Omar called yeah, being in the game. Yeah. Yeah. And like that doesn't, that's very unusual for Australia. Like that doesn't really happen that often. Like we do have <clears throat> organized crime that's very much alive and well, but we don't have that kind of like all out street violence of this is my turf, that's yours, you stay on your side of the fence, I stay on mine, you can't do business here. That, like, like there's warfare. none of that. Yeah, there's just none of that. I, it does happen in the background, but it's, it's kept really quiet. Um, they, it really doesn't raise the police's attention when it does happen. Um, and it's only when it really spills out and it's, you know, it, it has gone, there's probably been a lot of things been happening and then finally it becomes very, very public. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's very unusual for here that that kind of stuff happens. So that was a good one. Like, I've, uh, yeah, I've never been to one since like that. Um, yeah. It's interesting it, it when, you, when you get to something where you go, Wait, am I actually? Is this actually happening? Like, yeah, weird. You're like, that's in like. You get a weird out of body experience. No, that doesn't quite. Doesn't quite look like car crashes are the worst ones. For that where you just like, how does how do you how do your head do that? Like, how does right? How, yeah. How's your body around that? Yeah, but, um, it, yeah. There's yeah. there becomes a an, you become emotionally detached. You may you may experience the emotions later. Uh, yeah. but you become detached in the moment because you have to do your job. And so your mind mm. goes to this weird place where you're just like, heads aren't supposed to point that way. That's, I haven't seen one point that way before. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I will tell you, I remember going to a traffic collision where, and I, I, I think I've told this story before, just this portion of it, where when the, when the driver was finally found, I finally found her. I couldn't see her head, just her arms and shoulders. Oh. Sticking oh, out from underneath yeah. the car, yeah. and I, I thought, "Oh, she's got no, she's got no head." I'm going to get have have to get the helicopter up and go looking in the field with the infrared because it's still warm, mm. and we're never going to. It was mm. underneath there, you know. But like, <laughs> but that was like, oh, okay, we found it. We're good. Like you have this weird moment of not the later on. I was like, oh, the that horrible. That's a horrible way to go, and that and the the mm. kind of the the emotions of it hit you later but in the moment you're like yeah okay good okay i don't have to go trudging through the yeah. field looking for the head yeah I we really we, we call it um we call it emu bobbing emu yeah yeah so the scariest fuck bird <laughs> <laughs> they, they're no joke they're no yeah. joke um and they are suicidal bastards anyway um <laughs> They will, they will like run. So you see them on the side of the road, and they'll run towards your car. So you slow down, and and then they'll change direction, just go back the way they came, and then they're like, no, 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 I actually want to die, and they're straight back into your car. They're, yeah, they're just <laughs> goddamn baby suicidal baby dinosaurs with feathers. Wow. Yeah. Um, so we the the term that we gave them because um, I worked in some pretty remote locations um, where there was lots of emus um, was turbo chooks. <laughs> But emu bobbing is when you go to a really bad crash and there's like, or like a train accident, anything where there's bits of people for a very long way and you are, you spend like hours just bobbing oh, down. Bending down be, oh my God, that's yeah. hilarious. Mm. And it's like I a can... race against the, it's a race against the crows. <laughs> oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so we call it emu bobbing. I haven't had to do that yet. So, but, we don't pick yeah, that I, stuff I mean, up. We leave it for the corner. 
Oh, sometimes so, so we, we, to, we no, that's our job. <laughs> yeah, oh, wow. sometimes we had to do that. Yeah, because you know the coroners were the deputies, and the deputies were your friends. And so when the deputies came uh, out and had yeah. to pick up parts, you, they were like, "Hey, yeah, all right, buddy. Yeah, you're gonna you suffer me, a long You owe me breakfast. <laughs> you owe me breakfast when we get yeah. off a graveyard shift. <laughs> no, we're just like, yeah, we'll hold traffic. <laughs> Have fun. Yeah. You know, what, no, what is that body parts when they're off of people and there's no more life in them, they don't look real. And you can yeah. mistake a body part for like a tennis ball, not a tennis ball, uh, a, a basketball. I almost for a lot of things. Like depend, yeah, you can, it doesn't look like it's supposed to be there. It just, I almost stepped on one. Yeah. The skull, the top of a skull. Yeah. Popped it's off just, and, and the brains. Oh. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> and I, yeah. So, well, I, I, man, you have, we had such a good time that we only got through one of your stories and I know you brought several. Yeah. Three more. We'd, we'd love to have you back anytime you want. Oh. Um, I, I, I find this stuff fascinating and I, I, I love to compare and contrast how the, how the job is different, meaning the administrative, the, the how, mm. how you get hired, how you get on the street, you know, like the fact that you guys don't have training officers that help you right out of the Academy. I mean, the minimum in California was 16 weeks that you had to be married to this training officer. Yeah. And it, at, at larger agencies like LAPD, you're going to spend a, a year with that person, you know, or, or with no, multiple training officers. So, you know, that's mind boggling to me that you, you wouldn't at least have, you know, some you time where you just, just rode around with an experienced officer for a long period of time. You could be like a day off probation and you'll be taking out a brand new brand new um, probation or like a day out of the academy hmm. that'll wow. end well <laughs> kind of interesting but you learn a lot different. of it <clears throat> real quick off topic because you're in australia what is the craziest thing that you found in your house oh because everything in australia is trying to kill you is that yeah. why i check oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah i've seen like snakes like curled around <laughs> a toilet bowl big ass tarantulas yeah. like yeah i'm good with yeah. that yeah so, I mean, sp- spiders are, that's just normal. Um, I hate spiders. Um, I mean, tarantulas. So, <laughs> no, let's be, I mean, let's be real. You guys don't have regular spiders. They're like kind of. <laughs> yeah, they do. They just also yeah. have spiders um, like the size called, of your face. <laughs> they're called huntsmans. <laughs> yes, the <laughs> huntsman lucky. spiders, dude. Oh. Yeah, we have we have another one which they're worse because they have these enormous webs. They're called golden orb spiders. Yes, those things are crazy. Oh, I don't like those. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, no. So when so a few years ago, I uh, lived and worked in a town um, called Eucla, which is a border town. So it's on the on the border of South Australia and Western Australia. So if you drew a line straight down the centre of Australia from the top to the bottom we would be right on the bottom, like we're pretty much like halfway of the landmass, um, like on the bottom coast of Australia. Like up in the inside of the horseshoe? Yeah, okay. pretty much. Yeah, of the Great right. Australian Bite, yeah. Um, sure. So that place has a lot of things that will um, end you, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's like sharks that cruise around about 20 meters offshore, so you don't go swimming. Um, there's death adders, there's snakes, there's spiders. Um, yeah, any snake or, with the name the adder. Dingoes yeah. seem cool though. Uh, they are, but people okay, make them. True or false, of, you can get a domesticated dingo. You can, but that's a leak. Okay, so is it's doable, yeah. but it's it, not it supposed is. to be done. And, and it, yeah, it does happen, and there's a pretty big black market for it of um, like half breeds and stuff like that. And I've come across a couple in my time in the job, like going to people's houses and that, and they are not a real like they're they're different. They're not. Yeah, I wouldn't mess with them. They they got the crazy eyes. But the craziest thing, um, and I didn't see it, but my husband, who's also a police officer. Um, went home to get his lunch because he'd forgotten his lunch. And our house was, there was like the police station, the officer in charge of the police station's house, and then our house. So our house is like uh, 30 metres from the from the police station. Like, like <laughs> That's 50 convenient. Yards, 50 yards. Um, yeah. So he's walked home and it was a hot day um, and there was always snakes. Like we'd always see snakes on the road or just, it, that was just part and parcel of being there. Um, and he's got home and it would have been like three minutes later 
he bursts back into the police station. I'm sitting there like, eating my lunch and he's black, white. My husband is a brown man <laughs> and he was white. <laughs> and, he's like, <laughs> and he's sweating and he's like out of breath and he he's like stone cold Steve Austin. Like he he nothing upsets him, nothing nothing gets him riled up at all. And he was like bouncing off the red limiter. What's going on? He goes, there was a snake. <laughs> so this snake, <laughs> our house, <laughs> our house was clad in weatherboard on the outside. Um, and it was at our front door and it was like a big, big brown snake, um, which is one of the most deadliest snakes in the world. Um, and it was trying to slither up the the weatherboard. Like I suppose it was trying to get away from, like get out of the sun or like get under the eaves of the house. I don't know. But um, Yeah, you don't want that, one of those in the eaves of your damn house. That, and, and after that, um, I would... <laughs> I had massive anxiety about there being a snake in our house. Um, oh, my wife would make us move. <laughs> we had a cat and um, she, every now and then she would like growl and carry on in the dead of night. And I always think, oh, God, it's a snake in our house. <laughs> yeah. But we had quite, we had a couple come into the station, like into the police station, like little ones. Yeah. So snakes, snakes is probably up there with the worst yeah. thing you're going to find in your house in Australia. Mm. Mm. See, and, and I've had pet snakes. I've had them. I, I don't mind snakes, oh, no. but the snakes yeah. in Australia—that's a whole different thing. Like, mm. I don't, I don't want to mess with. At least the snakes in like in the United States, for the most part, if they don't rattle at you, you you don't have to worry too much. There's some in the south oh. and, and other regions, but you know the rattle I, lets you know. I, the, the ones in freaking. I think you've got. Have to assume every snake in Australia is trying to kill you. I think we've got, um, it's something mad like 75% of all of the world's venomous snakes are in Australia. Nope, I'm good. I, I'm, I, think, I, think, I think that that's the number. But, and nope, that, that's that my sounds right. That that's enough for me. I'm going with it. That sounds right. <laughs> so, well, but if that's, that's like a good little segue for the next story that I'll tell you later oh oh i can't wait okay well we'll have to have you back for that chuckle make sure you get that schedule because now it's going to be a snake story and i'm all for it well lucy we always uh give our guests a chance to dedicate their episode to uh, a brother or sister officer or firefighter or veteran mm-hmm. who's uh passed on and uh chuck says you have somebody that you'd like to yeah i do your episode too so um i went through so in the academy we had two squads so I was in grey squad and our sister squad, which goes through at the same time, was green squad. And when I went, when I graduated the academy and went on to the booze bus, I um, was put into a, a, a booze bus team that was made up of the guys from green squad. One of those guys <clears throat> um, was just a brilliant person um, and he, he joined the job late. He joined at 40. Um, and he was super hardworking. He spent the first 20 years of his adult life as a truck driver, just driving east to west coast, um, really experienced guy, and um, just had a lot of passion, really, really, really great person. So much so that when I was out at Euclid, because it's a really hard place to get people to come to, um, we had a vacancy and I messaged him and I said, hey, um, like this place would really suit you. I know you're single. You like working hard. Like, you know, we need good people out here. Would you come? He messaged me back and I kept the message um, saying, oh, I, I've always wanted to go bush and, like, that would be a really good spot, but I've just started on this new team at work and I'm having such a good time and I really want to, like, see this through. So, oh, I mean, good, good for you, like, good on you. Um, and the day that I left Euclid, that I drove out of Euclid, um, he went to work and he obviously um, had a few demons Um, and he went to work and he lost his fight with those demons that day Um, and he he ended his life at work on the job. Um, And that was so when I finally got into my hotel that night, it was all over the news and, um, yeah, and I found out that it was this wonderful person that I've spent like the very um, the first few very important months of my policing career working very closely with. Um, right. Yeah. So I would like to dedicate um, this to Darren Eagleston. 
Um, he was, I think he was about 47 um, when he died. And yeah, so I'd like to dedicate this episode to him. Wonderful, wonderful well, person he was. Well, rest easy, brother. We got it from here. Um, and remember, if reach out. It doesn't ever have to be to that point. Yeah, exactly. Reach out. Exactly. Reach out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you yeah. know what? It, it was a good thing for um, like a learning curve. Like, yeah, there's probably some people that it got a got a wake up call from it that maybe needed it. Yeah. So, so if, if you can take a positive yeah. from it, that would be that. I'm sure. So. Well, Chuck, uh, you have announcements before we go. Yeah, yeah, real quick. Um, real quick, uh, you guys are listening. I know some of you guys don't follow Instagram, Facebook, uh, but if you want to come onto the show, uh. Email us at uh, booking.warstories at gmail.com uh, or make an account. Go to Facebook, Instagram, uh, go to the bio, click the link, and then you can reach us there. And if you have questions, you can also uh, reach us there. Um, and uh, stay tuned. We have we have uh, some some shirt, uh, not shirts. Uh, we have a piece of clothing coming. Um, uh, we gave out some hints. We've had I think some, you guys some well. people guessing as to what it is. Uh, there's one person who's real, real close. I don't know. You yeah. might be, you might be yeah. spot on. You, you might not. You might be far off. But, anyways, uh, it'll be pretty cool. Um, it should be uh, the shipment should be here soon. Um, so it's just we're just waiting on delivery now. And then as soon as that is uh, here, it'll be released here. So hopefully by um, another week, it, it'll be here. Um, and then when we release it and promote it. Uh, but yeah, if you want to come on the show, booking.warstories at gmail.com. Uh, and it's a good send, Christmas send present. It is a good Christmas present. It is. So hopefully, oh. I, I'm so hoping we get them before Christmas. I mean, they're already yeah. in transit. They should be in the port. We're just waiting on that container to come the in. Backlog so. of those dang. Well, it could be sitting there waiting to be unloaded at this point, the way Los it, Angeles it, is being it run. It could be. It could so. be. Well, Lucy, thank you for being with us. I, I know, um, you know, with, time difference and stuff sometimes scheduling this can be tough and i know what it sounds like you've got a one-year-old so even getting an hour to sit and chat with us about police work is is tough because you know police work may be hard but uh being a parent is even harder oh yeah (laughs) i mean you can't beat your child as hard as you can beat a suspect sometimes (laughs) well uh, um, probably not 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 with the climate (laughs) exactly oh man well it's all right. At least, at least, hopefully, the kids are are uh, the reason we're doing all this because we'll leave it a better place than we found it, right? So, uh, well, I, I again, I appreciate you coming on, and until our next episode, come home with your shield or on it.